Datanauts have featured many open source projects attempting to put wrenches in your hands if you like to build your own infrastructure rockets. And the open source software approach is often paired with white box hardware, shifting around both the economic and operational models for infrastructure. The open source and white box shift is even happening in networking as companies get sick of treating their networks like spoiled brat children who have to be pampered so that they don't throw a temper tantrum. Well, what does all this mean for IT going forward? We ponder these imponderables today on the Data Knots podcast. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for Data Knots, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Data Knots underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks. And with me is the infectious Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who is a carrier for bronchitis today and a friend of all meds ending in Quill. But he is a trooper and joined us for the show. Our guest today, Peyton Maynard Curran, currently working at a blockchain startup called the Up Channel. And I met Peyton at the FutureNet conference hosted by VMware back in August 2017, where he gave a really provocative talk aimed at networkers about why networking is so incredibly broken. And we're going to tease apart some of Peyton's big ideas here while playing the role of skeptic along the way. Peyton, welcome to the Data Knots podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I just I want to jump right in here and get into your ideas about the uh, the big broken vendor networking model. I wanted to cover this on data because what's happening here in networking really bleeds over into everywhere else in the IT stack. And so I think it's important to bring out some of these ideas so that people that don't really work with networking are starting to get what we're up against. So we've done some shows like this before where uh, just how badly broken networking is helping other people understand, oh, that's why it's so slow and so on. Let's open up this way. Now, I've heard you say that systems, they're only as good as the networks that they're built on. And, and that really does seem like a good way to frame this discussion. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. If you think about how every system operates, and we're actually talking about walking packets here. If you think about how a system operates, we make a lot of assumptions when we think about how a network's going to perform. You know, I've talked to high-level CEO, CTO types around the performance of their application. And there seems to be holistically in the world of IT and the world of engineering and systems engineering, this idea that everything's as efficient as it can be. And that's just not the case. I did a whole series when I was working at Riot Games on how just AS-to-AS traffic movement is highly inefficient and you aren't really getting the best performance out of the internet. And this applies in so many areas, internet traffic, CDN, it applies to how traffic's actually happening on your network. And it all comes down to three simple things. One, the protocols we're working with are old. The way we move data around, the way that we do things on networks has not changed really in a decade. And if you think about even BGP, that's something that was written in the 70s. Two, we've been trained to build things in overly complex ways, especially at the network layer where we use the network as a tool to do traffic separation and do uh, blocking and do all the things that we've been told to do that really a network's not built for. A network's built for moving packets, maybe doing some denial, and that's about it. And then three, we have a vendor ecosystem that really has encouraged us to keep going down rabbit holes with specialized networking devices and specialized networking software that one, we can't change, we can't change the software. And two, the devices are always just not quite good enough, if you know what I mean. So we're always left wanting to buy more. That has really sort of stymied how we can actually build out applications, how we can actually use the internet and use our networks to actually deliver more value because they're too complex, they're too slow, and that means that we're making accommodations for those things in software. So our software is actually not working as efficiently as it could be. That's what I mean in general. Well, kind of coming from the less networking, more server and storage background, I'm just thinking about the fact that there's a bit of a kind of a separation in my mind. And I guess I'll frame it like this. As a customer or just any company out there, they want to know that what they buy from their vendor is going to provide security. It's going to work and operate safely, et cetera. And it's a pretty easy choice to say, okay, I'm going to buy VMware for hypervisor or HP or Dell for my servers and compute. Right. I typically feel pretty comfortable with those choices. I'm not that worried about you know going out and reinventing the wheel. 
it sounds kind of like on the networking side, that's not true. And that maybe I should not feel comfortable buying from the big vendors, the Cisco's and Juniper's and Arista's just because there's, it almost sounds like planned obsolescence in a way. Uh, oh yeah. Give you 90% of what you want, but never all of it. They have roadmaps. And look, I'm a vendor. I, I worked at Alcatel Lucent. I sold as a sales engineer. I worked in the CTO office. I've had friends at Cisco, friends at Juniper. Look, you walk into your room at a vendor and at some point there is going to be a spreadsheet or there's going to be a slide that says, this is the beginning life cycle of a device and this is the end life cycle of the device. And here's the device we're going to enter in to the market that's going to take over for it. You know, the only device that I think is... Uh, broken that model is the cisco 6500 series switches because those <laughs> things just won't go away uh, <laughs> yeah but there's a couple things you glossed over in your statement there you're like i can go buy hp or i can go buy dell and i'm generally happy the, the difference is you're buying a server that's at margin of around 25 percent and if you buy an hp server or you buy a dell server does that impact what version of windows or linux you put on it mm, no not really but in the networking world, if I buy a Cisco router, I have to put Cisco iOS on it. If I buy a Juniper router, I have to put Junos. Uh, so it's more around the, the, the combination of hardware then chaining you to software than it is the hardware itself. That's exactly right. So in servers, even the components in Dell and HP are pretty much the same. You know, They're actually buying them from the same suppliers. It's how they put them together, their packaging, all their other stuff that they, they put together that makes you buy HP or Dell. Or you can go to Quanta now, and you're buying something that's exactly the same device, just put together by Quanta at a lower lower cost. But what I get from the networking world is everybody's got something special, or everybody's got something different. So that means I can't run economies of scale and buy lots of things. I'm buying one thing from one guy, one thing from another guy. Their software really doesn't work well together because Juniper doesn't like to do it this way, and Cisco doesn't like to do it that way. And so in networking, I'm dealing with the mess and I can't change any of it. Yeah. But if I just jump in Peyton and if I just pick a vendor, you know, Cisco, whoever, a lot of people seem to pick Cisco and go with that. Isn't that just fine? I mean, or, or are you kind of implying that being aligned with a big networking vendor like that is, is holding back the rest of my IT stack? I would say, sure. It's just fine. The question is, is it good enough? You know, for a majority of companies that are trying to move faster with their networks and trying to innovate more quickly, Having an outside software development team, the Cisco iOS development team, really doesn't keep up for them. And so what they do is they have to take solutions that are built for Cisco or built by Cisco and try to implement it in their network to support the software. It doesn't completely support the software. So the software then has to make accommodations in the way they build their software stack to support the network. Does that make sense? Instead of having a system where as we're developing a thing, a tool, if I told you, you're developing this new software thing, you wholly own it, but I need you to bring in these three vendors to build parts of it. You don't get any insight into their product roadmap. You don't get any influence into it, and they'll deliver you features when they get around to it. Software developers would go crazy. No, right. You're making the point that if you invest, certainly on the networking side, if you invest in Cisco, Juniper, Arista, whoever, you're beholden to them and whatever features and functionality that they deliver to you on their timetable, you get what you get. If it's what you need and it's good enough, great. But if it isn't and you're trying to do more, then you've got a constraint there. You've got a bottleneck uh, potentially in uh, in the infrastructure you're trying to build out. Right. Look at firewalls today. Majority of firewalls that you buy can't run line rate, whether it be one or 10 gig. But what I could do is I could actually take a switch and I can run a software-defined firewalls on compute at a much lower cost than the firewalls I'm buying today. and be able to run that through my, my compute at line rate using DPDK or using several different other tools, but it would take development. It would take people understanding how to build that versus just going and buying a Cisco or a Juniper firewall. And the question is, what's good enough for you? If you're a small operator and you're doing 100 mega traffic and it's just going to the internet, we're not talking about these guys. What we're talking about is people that have development of, of systems that are needing to scale relatively quickly and are supporting a large amount of app connections or database connections, whatever it is that makes their system work effectively, and the network's getting in the way. Peyton, that leads me to think about some of the presentations where you talk about, I guess, networking devices being kind of specialty snowflakes and that they have a lot of feature bloat. You know, you mentioned that the roadmaps are kind of like, here's the end of the life of the thing, and no one's ever going to use 
all the features or we're not going to make everything that they need so that they have other products they need to bring into the data center. This is kind of the other way around where we pack a bajillion features into a device. But there's kind of the assumption that 80-20 rule being what it is, maybe 20% of what's there is going to get used. The other 80% just adds risk in the form of vulnerabilities and, and feature bloat and things like that. I mean, is that really different from the rest of IT? Because I know there's a lot of little nerd knobs in my server at the BIOS level that I never really play with, or is it a little bit different in the networking world? Well, I think that's the that's the transition we're seeing. Let's talk about servers for a second, and then relay that back to networking. I love talking about servers. Let's do it. All right. So you like microservices, right? I mean, uh, I love micro everything. <laughs> That's what we're mostly talking. Microsoft, but yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, you lost me now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you think about what microservices has done in the world of how we build uh, software stacks and IT systems, the idea that I have to have a DHCP server that's a Microsoft server that's got Microsoft Server 2016 and I'm paying for all that licensing is kind of stupid. And I hate to use that word, but it's true. You can fire up a microservice that runs a DNS daemon that's connecting in the way you want it and it's got just the amount of features you want like how does it what what are its dns relays what's the security policy what's the login and i can spin that microservice up in seconds so let's say that dns microservice is getting overloaded i can actually write software that allows it to spin up another dns server so forth and so on i can put it through multiple parts of my network and i i don't care about licensing it's all on linux it's all in a docker container or some sort of containerized instance and that means that I'm getting extremely discreet on my features. Now let's roll that back to networking. There's no way to do that. Every time I get a software load from Juniper, Cisco, whoever, that software load contains everything. Hmm. And a lot of those things can actually be turned on by default, and I have no idea. Less than 10 years ago, CDP, Cisco Discovery Protocol, was turned on by default on every networking device. Huge security hole caused a lot of processor utilization on my devices. And, you know, you had to understand how to go and figure out that that thing was turned on by default. Nobody told you that you would never have servers set up that way. Because even in even in like the Windows world, more and more recently, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, but the roles and features allow you to take kind of a, a base underlying Windows environment and then add DCP and DC services and things like you're not getting everything within the stack. That's exactly right. And yeah, even though even though I'm sure you'd be like, oh, it's bloated. It takes five gig to install, you know, but on the side, you could still you can still kind of modularize the software that's running on it from a feature and role perspective. Yeah, we could have a whole show on that. That drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but to roll that back to networking. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like you, you don't get into a situation where all these things are turned. A lot of things are turned on by default. You don't get into a situation where you are accepting all the tech debt and risk right up front. You do that in networking, though. Let's take Juniper. Juniper is probably the worst example of this because Junos, which everybody loves because it's one image that you put on every device, is sort of the epitome of tech debt. You know, at, at one company I worked at, we had over 300 software problems in one calendar year with Juniper. And the problem was that someone would change SRX code and it would affect my MXs. Now, think about that. Two different product lines that have nothing to do with each other, but someone is working on a TCP bug in their SRX code and somehow affects my MX and how it performs. Would you accept that if you're working with servers? Would you accept that one kind of Dell server impacts another kind of Dell server? Or just think about any other software that applies to a specific hardware, which again, really doesn't happen for servers. No, so it's point. hard to even find an example. Or you can look at different product lines from Cisco. You know, there have been so many software problems that we've had because of the fact that it's just it's just a big big load, you know, all the stuff, and I don't need it all. Peyton, one of the ways that I've heard you address this issue is, you know, rather than going with a big monolithic network operating system sent to you by the big vendor if you want it or not, go with the open source networking software model, or at least I think that's what you said. But okay, so if people that hear that think of their networks and think of them as very precious, don't want them to crash ever, and open source software is like, eh, it's a hippie love-in, woo, and businesses are going to, I don't have time for that nonsense. So what would you say to them? I would say you're kidding yourself that your network doesn't go down and that your network doesn't fail. <laughs> the, the premise on the question is, you know, we want a secure network that never fails. Well, you're screwed anyway. Your networking provider, the Cisco's, the Junipers, the Alcatel Lucent's, whoever, 
they've already messed up your software. 95% of people that get software from a vendor really expect it to have a flaw. When I was at Alcatelucent and we were servicing large companies like Comcast, Cox Communications, Time Warner Cable, Verizon, AT&T, they never just took software from us and were like, oh, it's going to work. They always put it in a testing bank and ran it for months because they wanted to see everything from memory link capability. They wanted to see anything that could change inside the way the software had been after it been loaded for a long time. And they'd look for every single flaw. And I'll tell you what, as a operator at Time Warner Cable and as a vendor at Alcatel-Lucent, I never saw software come back that was completely flawless, ever. There were times when, when we as an operator at Time Warner Cable accepted the risk on some flaws that we saw. And there are times that as a network operator or a network vendor at Alcatel-Lucent where I saw customers take that same leap of faith, but I never, ever saw from any vendor software that came back 100% clean. So just based on that, your, the, the question is wrong. What you should be saying is, if I want my network to be completely secure and stable, how do I have the most capability to fix it when it does break? How can I make changes to my software as quickly as possible instead of waiting 60, 90, 180 days for a vendor who's got all these other requirements from all their other customers to get back to my problem? How can I make change on my network as quickly as possible to make sure that it stays up the most amount of time possible and is working the most efficiently? You know, one takeaway I had was that I honestly hadn't really thought about the idea that the hardware choices you make in the networking world have traditionally meant being bound to the software stack of that hardware vendor's choosing. You know, I, I think I knew it in the back of my head, but I never really thought about it. And, and, and then I tried to put that context into like the server world. It's like, oh, I can only buy a Windows server from Lenovo as an example. And I mean, I would just point and laugh and be like, ha, that's, that's hilarious. I'm not going to buy from you. So that's where my head's at. What about you, Ethan? Well, I think there's businesses that want to believe that when they buy a, a Juniper box or a Cisco or Arista, that because it's got that big name vendor on and it's got that big name vendor software on and it runs as this integrated thing that, yes, even though it's limited, you get all this safety and security and the comfort of uh, buying that big name product. But, but Peyton made that point. You got to stop kidding yourself that that big name vendor's networking software is like just so awesome and bug free and going to be stable for you. It is as risky as anything else out there, and so you might as well broaden your horizons and try other other solutions. The big name vendors don't have a corner on this anymore. You know, I remember hearing a story, Peyton, you were talking about a group of network engineers that were threatening to quit because a, a new networking vendor was being proposed. Like, ah, oh, the world is, is ending, sky is falling. I thought it was interesting because I hear similar stories outside of the networking world where I think like if any major change is proposed, especially when it threatens your technology skills, it's like, ah, oh, the world's ending. So I was hoping you could dig into that story a bit and talk about how that's different from the rest of IT in this situation with the with the network engineers going, ah, we don't want this vendor. Keep out. Ah, do not pass. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a strange place to be in. In fact, uh, you know, the story is that they threatened to quit. And then when the new vendor was brought in, they actually did quit. Eight network engineers Whoa. basically quit <laughs> because a new vendor was implemented that they didn't like. I mean, that's like saying we bought HP servers this time, guys. And then a large percentage of your software engineer is like, well, I'm out. Not going to stay. Is it, though, is, is it more like saying we're all Windows and now we're going to Linux? Because you're saying the software changes, right? So it'd be like, I, oh, gosh. I, no, because we're actually talking about hardware. Yeah, the software does change when it comes from a Cisco or a Juniper. But look, it's a network device moving packets. Yeah. Versus okay. the same as a server. If you know how to route, if you know how to switch, if you understand the fundamentals of networking, in theory, the device that is doing those things for you shouldn't matter that much. You just dig into the command set or however you configure the thing and, and off you go. Ethan, just record yourself saying that a thousand times and like blast <laughs> every network engineer in the uh, world. I literally had a candidate walk in and I was doing an interview and he asked a question. He said, so what's your primary network device? At the time, it was Juniper. We said so, and he, he smiled he, and, and said, but we're going to be multi-vendor in the next three months. He literally looked at me like I was the devil and was like, <laughs> why would you use any other networking device but Juniper? And I, I, I was like, well, you know, there's software problems we have to overcome sometimes. There's hardware problems we have to overcome sometimes. And, you know, at the end of the day, these are all just routers. So who gives a 
Mm. Well, to follow up on what Chris was saying, though, I mean, do you think, I mean, I, I know that familiarity, that feeling of I've learned or even certified on this product or this way of doing things from this vendor. Like I spent a lot of years in the Cisco trenches. And so moving on to other things was always challenging because you couldn't just, like I, I did spend a lot of time with Juniper devices as well. And to sit down and do something simple like provision an Ethernet interface and get the VLANs and the tagging right is a whole bizarre command set that if you until you're familiar with it, it takes you a long time to sort out that very simple and common task. And so I do understand that fear, but but at the end of the day, once I did learn how to do it, it's like, oh, it's the same thing. It's just the commands are different. And so here's the question. Are you saying that you don't want to learn anymore because you don't want to learn different ways to do it based on syntax? I don't want to learn anymore. You don't? Well, I got my hat. Oh. No, no. It's, or, a good, or... it's a good point because I, I've actually gone through this process both in the home lab and in the enterprise where I, I bought I bought one vendor. I get the other one in. I bash my head against the wall for like two days straight trying to get the syntax right. Then something clicks and I'm like, okay, now it's like in Jurassic Park. She's like, oh, it's a Unix system. I know this. You know, that, that moment happens where it's like, okay, this isn't that bad. That's right. And I think that the ecosystem around networking that's made this difficult is just the religious nature of animosity between vendors. You know, you literally have sales teams and PM teams that are bad mouthing the other vendor. Everybody's wearing their Cisco Juniper, whatever shirt, walking around talking about how much they like to go to Cisco Live or Juniper Next or whatever it is. And instead of being like, hey, this is a device that we use the moves packets, we should be able to drive how efficiently that works much more quickly. It's just created this world where people will walk off and quit if they don't work on the vendor that they choose. It's crazy. Okay. I want to go back to the open source thing again, because you, you've, again, advocated for that, for the network operating system. Well, again, from the business perspective, some businesses look at open source software and go, eh, yeah, I don't know about that. From an engineering or operator perspective, it's a similar set of questions. Going to open source for networking doesn't sound easier to me. It sounds like a similar challenge to go between Juniper to Cisco or whatever. Open source sounds like a lot of work to learn. It also makes me nervous because it feels kind of risky and it's time that I don't have. And maybe it's not that I don't want to learn, but I'm just like, I got so much to do. Sit here and learn something you know new and that's going to take me a long time to actually get in production where I'm comfortable with it. Ah, it all sounds like it's too much. I mean, am I kidding myself here about how difficult it would be to make a transition to open source networking? Yes and no. So a transition to open source networking is going to be a challenge because it's going to be something that we build together. And it's also going to really sort of set a bar where network engineers stop being just network engineers and all they work on is network operating systems. And they're going to start being software engineers and they're going to start building those networking operating systems. Okay, there's, there's a key here, though. You just implied that I'm not building some the same old network I've always built for the last 10, 20 years, that maybe I'm building something custom and different? No, no. I, I, what I'm saying is you're enabling your tools to allow you to do what you've done in the past, just in a different way. Ah, okay, okay. And, and what you're also doing is being able to augment those networks much more quickly. You know, let's say you want a feature that works a little different than the way it works today. With open source, you can go in and change it and make it work the way you want. Maybe that's how it calculates routes. Maybe that's how it works on VLAN. Maybe it's how it builds its BGP table, whatever. As long as that's internal to your network, you can do whatever you want. Well, okay. So no, you are actually suggesting that I could I could get crazy with it. Like, oh, I want like a, you know, I need a custom routing protocol or something. Yeah. I've actually seen that happen. I actually saw a University of uh, Pennsylvania build their own networking protocol because they found all the other protocols were too inefficient for what they were trying to do. I mean, that's sort of an extreme example, though. Most companies aren't going to do that. Well, that's not what we're talking about here, Ethan. We're talking about giving people the option. Ah. Now, so the, the difference is, yes, me, network engineer, someone will probably write me an OSPF stack or a BGP stack, put it into GitHub. I'll download it, test it for a little while, and then start to use it. And I'll, Or I'll use Bird or Kawaga, and I'll probably never make a change. I'll probably never check a change into GitHub. I'll probably never share back to the open source community. That's 90%, 95% of what happens in open source today. You find people that are willing, the 5 to 10% of people that are willing to make software, write code, and then check it into GitHub. And then the others uh, test it, make sure it works for them. If there's a small change that they need, they make a change, and they usually keep that internal. They don't share back. 
and then but that they used it. That's exactly the same ecosystem we're talking about for networking. Go use Bird for BGP or Kawaga. Go use whatever you want else for OSPF or ISIS internally. Go build a stack that works for you if you want to. But those are tools you have now that you don't currently have. Uh, but that's a really different mindset for the average network engineer who's uh, typically been building things in the way that they were trained. You're suggesting something that's way more – I think the word is ownership where – I want to think deeply about how my packets get forwarded around my network and own that process very, very deeply and build a custom stack. Maybe I write software. Maybe I'm just using someone else's, but I'm building this thing that does packet forwarding exactly the way I need it to. And now I've got the options and the tools to do it. Isn't that what we've always wanted to do? I mean, we've been begging network vendors to do things like segment-based routing or to do things like on MPLS, to use things like RF3C 3107. And what happens is they sit there and they tell us it can't work or it should work a different way and they go build it their way and then vendor A doesn't work with vendor B. We've been doing what you just described be a proxy and doing a really terrible job of it for 25 years. So why not just do it ourselves? Well, pivoting just a bit from from the world of let's do whatever we want and make changes and move fast and break things to the complete opposite, uh, standards bodies. So when I think of networking, I definitely think of standards. And to your earlier comment in the show, where you're talking about really old protocols that have been around for, for decades, that's kind of the standard that is networking, right? It moves very slowly. It takes forever to kind of agree upon something. But then that's the strength, right, is that we all agree we're going to you know, apply to these seven layers of the of the networking model or this particular protocol or whatnot. I mean, what's really going on here? Is well, that a, a kind of a strength, a weakness, both? Well, you, everything you just said was wrong today. Excellent. <laughs> so the reason that standard bodies were great back in the day, to be truthful, is because everybody was doing something different. Everything from OC protocols that allow you to do optical transmission over TDM, and even when we got to LAN and WAN 5, 10 gig Ethernet, how you were building uh, routing protocols, you know, Cisco went off, made EIGRP and nobody else could. Uh, what, how does IGP work? How did RIP work back in the days? And then we got to OSPF and, you know, BGP was always how we exchange AS information. And that was good back 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. But let's look at the track record lately. Let's talk about the last 15 years. You know, MPLS has taken over a decade to implement. And there's still in parity, there's still uh, disparate deployments from each vendor. If we talk about things like OpenNFV, OpenNFV was congratulating themselves a few months ago that after five years, Etsy, one of the European standards bodies, had finally agreed to some of the things that they wanted in OpenNFV. Five years. And OpenNFV is all software. It is all how software interacts with your hardware platform and gives you information, how you program it, so forth and so on. And, and software and taking network functions and moving it out of network devices and back into servers. Why does it take us five years to even come to a conclusion on that? Why not build an MVP? I mean, if you're, if you, have you ever studied Lean Startup? I have not, no. Okay. Lean Startup is this idea that the problem with most software and most devices is that people decide they want to build it all. They want a gold-plated service, sounds a lot like network vendors today, and they want to build it all, and they want it all to work great before they deploy it. The problem with that is that can take you years. And by the time you get your product on the ground, that product is already outdated. It doesn't do everything the, the customer wanted because the customer's wants have changed in that time. And so what you get is substandard products. So instead of taking all the things that people want, why don't you just start with an MVP? And Ethan, this is back to also what you're talking about, how networkers might be scared to do this. I'm not talking about changing everything day one. Let's find small products, small parts of our network that we can change, move to compute, move to a different white box scenario, and test with it. And then as we gain confidence and as that minimum viable product gets more and more functional, has more and more value, we continue to add more things to it. That would allow us to build out these networks much more quickly. It would also allow us to adopt software and devices that work for us versus going for years through standard bodies and finally at the end of it getting something that sort of does what we wanted in the first place but not what we need today. 
All right, Peyton, you just mentioned quickly, and that's one of these complaints I hear about um, networking or network engineering is that, ah, geez, if I got to throw something over the wall to one of the networking people, it takes friggin' forever for those guys to get anything done. Well, all right, if the complaint is that networking moves too slowly, doesn't that mean that I, as the networking person, what I really want is just my big, safe, comfortable networking vendor to integrate with tools or some other parts of the IT stack for me? I know what you're saying about getting control, but I mean, it, it, wouldn't I outsource that? Why do I want to turn to internal software engineering to solve my operational problems? I, I think because one, you, one today, a network engineer, how many network engineers actually code on a product that is running on top of the network? I'd say it's probably less than 5%. Yeah, very, very few. Yeah. Right. So you're actually not getting that much value out of your network engineers other than just managing the network. If we flip that and we have software engineers that are operationalizing and managing the network, but also working on the product that runs on top of that network, think about how much more insight you get. One, as you look at your products, when we started this whole conversation, I talked about how networks are, are highly inefficient. People don't understand it because software developers and others at CTO level think it all works as efficiently as possible. Once we expose them how it's actually working, they actually can say, there's a more efficient way to build this, and I understand why. Or there's a different way we should be building our networks, and I understand why. And they can be doing the network administration and developing for my product. So now I've got actually more productivity and more capability for, from the people, the engineers. I mean, I, I have this thing that I say, and it, it probably doesn't make people very happy. I don't think network engineers are engineers. To be honest, I think we're implementers. We get code that we shove down our throat and we get to install our networks the way we're told to. Now, we do some engineering around whether it be how long our fiber runs can be, how much bandwidth can go through a box. But again, that's all built on tools that are given to us and things we haven't built. Yeah, we're con actually constrained by the tool sets that are given to us. You've got these routing protocols, you've got these command sets, you've got these, you know, whatever those constraints are that are given to you by the vendor in the box. And those are the boundaries in which you can do some amount of design. And generally speaking, right, digging through a manual, figuring out how to turn on this feature, configure it to do what you need to do, and off you go. You didn't design the feature. You're just using what's been given to you. Yes, it hurts a little bit for those of us that have a lot of uh, pride built up in the skill sets we've uh, developed around a certain platform. But the reality is, right, that isn't engineering. That's pushing buttons. That's implementation. And what we should be doing is engineering. We should be managing our networks so they work most efficiently, whether that be using software that's delivered to us through an open source or vendor ecosystem. But we should also be understanding how that is affecting the product that runs on top of it. How many times have you actually sat there with software? I, I have actually done a six-month conversation internal to a company just trying to define where infrastructure ends and the product begins. And nobody could understand that, even at the end of six months. Nobody could understand the impacts of both on each other. In our last talk, I talked about how we had a software development team that thought that networks worked in a certain way. So they built out a web service that was actually DDoSing itself because of the way it was hitting databases. So we had to actually put in F5 load balancers to stop that. Imagine if we'd all come together and said, here's how it's supposed to work. And we did this later when we transitioned the service to Amazon. But here's how it's supposed to work. Why is it falling down versus the network just saying, hey, I can accommodate for that using these load balancers? It totally changes how you do development and it could kill so much tech debt. You know, Chris, think about all the things as a software developer that you've done because of the way things are that increased tech debt, made your system less efficient, that if you had a holistic viewpoint, you probably could have overcome much more easily. Mm, that's true. So kind of a, a parting question here as we, as we teased apart various models for the, the network operational model, we'll say. One is the channel. And I know that you've criticized VARs for, for overcharging for kit, throwing in free lunches, you know, the, the bro deals, ball game tickets, that kind of thing. And, and I, I got to wave my hands in the air a bit. I've, I've lived that life. I've been in that world. You're not wrong. But when you move to Whitebox and open source, doesn't that just shift the costs around? You know, instead of paying the VAR, I now have to pay in-house expertise. You know, there's always a debt to pay down somewhere. Right, wrong? What's your opinion on that? It's totally wrong. So you, you're going to pay less wrong, for your in-house. <laughs> you're going to pay less for your in-house expertise. And now that you've got your in-house expertise, that expertise is incentivized by you to find the best solution bar none versus a bar that already has a 
vendor relationship that they're just trying to push product on. You know, that VAR also has technical assets that have been trained on that specific vendor. So that whole ecosystem around that VAR is just pushing, pushing, pushing one vendor or the other. I do not think, I've never seen a VAR that sold Cisco and Juniper. I have seen one that sold Juniper and Arista, but they always brought Arista, that, that one vendor brought Arista along as sort of that little kid that they'd show you and, and they'd never actually sell it to you. They are not really there for you. A VAR is there to sell as much product and services as possible and to charge as much for it as they can. Whereas if in-house you find the right talent and you're building it out, they're incentivized and you should incentivize them to be most efficient on cost and the best on network engineering and software engineering. The point Peyton made towards the end of this segment that there's more to engineering than, than pushing buttons effectively is what he said really stuck with me because it's something that I've been thinking about for, for a long time now that uh, networking folks spend a lot of time training on how to make a specific CLI do what it needs to do as opposed to this is how we do networking and therefore the networking device that you're doing networking with kind of doesn't matter. You do the same thing with all the different networking devices. You just got to figure out how to write the right command depending on what platform you're on. That should be a non-issue. The issue should be we're networkers and we do network engineering and vendor alliances shouldn't shouldn't be a thing we even consider and, and yet it is. And so, right, we are button pushers so often, uh, as opposed to engineers. What grabbed your attention, Chris? You're great at pushing my buttons, Ethan. My takeaway (laughs) is if you ever feel like quitting because a technology is being brought into the system, the organization, the company, whatever you may want to call it, I I think it's time to do some good, hard navel-gazing to figure out what your career goals are, because that's that's just unacceptable. That's not the world that we live in. And frankly, you're doing yourself a disservice as well as your company. Peyton, some of the ideas you've espoused here around open source and so on really take us to uh, white box and, uh, and, and your terminology, common compute. In the networking sense, common compute is starting to replace what used to be very specialized network devices. Even routers uh, can be replaced now with, uh, with some kind of a general purpose CPU. My question is, what is the operational impact of this as you begin to to move ahead with that? Maybe that's tooling. Maybe there's some other things you want to bring up. Uh, we could spend all day, but think about as that changes just the level of influence you have on how your networks actually work. Let's take a load balancer or a, a firewall, for instance. You know, We used to buy these very specialized devices or even uh, intrusion detection systems or DDoS mitigation systems. We used to buy very specialized devices that did one very specific thing. We'd wait 30 to 60, 90 days for software updates. If there was something that was wrong, we had an RMA process. If I'm using common compute for that, however, again, I'm developing much more quickly. If it fails, I just grab another server and put it in. I can even write my software in a way that allows it to fail over to another server that's already running. And now I'm buying, even you know, if you think about it from a financial perspective, I'm buying large amounts of servers now. So I'm able to drive those costs down based on the scale and I've changed my operational costs from 15 different devices at minimum to potentially three, you know, an edge router, switches, and servers. And that's it. Now, you might have various different servers based on, you know, do you want fast packet processing? Do I just need, need common compute, common, common compute, or do I need storage? Uh, but that's still so much smaller than the ecosystem is today. And the network is actually easier to trace. Because I have specialized things happening in each one of those compute banks, and I can see the packets moving around the data center much more efficiently than when I, when I had specialized devices that would sometimes do SSL termination and build another SNL, SSL tunnel, or I had load balancers that would have tables that I'd have to run through because each table was dedicated to one set of load balancing versus the other. And if something was failing, was it a table that had been corrupted? All the things that can happen to those specialized devices. But that is all indicative of... The advances in the processing power of general compute, and and I think also some of the technology, the, the software technology that's allowed us to you know really pipeline this traffic. DPDK has come up a lot in your conversations. Can you enlighten us as to what DPDK is and what that's enabling with networking and common compute? Yeah, so DPDK is a set of libraries and drivers for servers that allows fast packet processing. 
Now, why is that important? Because what used to happen is every time we talk about network traffic on a server, it would get pumped into a CPU. CPUs from a network perspective are actually quite slow. They make decisions. There's a whole operating system running around it. Even if you're talking about a Linux operating system, once I'm working in that environment, it slows down traffic dramatically. And this has always been the advantage of network devices was they had special network processing units in PUs, or they used ASICs, or they used FPGAs, and they're able to move traffic very, very quickly. Well, what happens if I put a NIC, a special NIC into a, a server, and I start running network operations on the NIC that are informed by the CPU into the NIC, but all the operations happen on the NIC? That dramatically changes the capabilities of that server. We were doing some testing at one of my companies, and we could do 85 operations on a packet in terms of nanoseconds, you know, smaller than micro. When we started thinking about the applications of this, this was amazing. 85 operations, that, that's a lot of operations to be happening in that short of a time span. Yeah, and, and it scaled all the way up to 40 gig per that NIC. So I could do full line rate 40 gig on the NIC. I could have a packet come in, rewrite the whole packet. And, and operations have to be broken down into smaller things. Like an operation is not changing the packet based on source and destination and all these things in one operation. That's actually probably eight. So reading the packet is one operation. Determining whether I should do anything to the packet is another. Then rewriting the destination is another. So that 85 gets consumed rather quickly. But still, I had 85 operations I could do in that amount of time. Instead of asking my CPU to do all the things that my network wants, if I broke that one particular NIC or one particular set of servers into a set of operations that they did very well, I now could have multi-stage authentication. I could be rewriting packets. I could resource things. I could be doing packet inspection and being doing, doing dropping when signature is not available. All the things that had been very hard to do in the past just got really, really easy. It was crazy. Uh, what about the cloud throwing a wrench into things? And I'm going to put my tongue firmly in my cheek. You know, people that say, the hell with networking, you know, I'm done with it. It's too hard. I'm moving to cloud because then there's no networking, I suppose. They're, they're right. <laughs> Wait a minute. I might have done a talk on this. The, the whole idea is that, look, I may pay six times more over time for the same set of hardware and services that I get, but I get them in 15 minutes. And they operate at, at close to five nines. If I need to figure out how to make something work, there's a continuous, evolving, very expansive set of organizations and communities that are always talking about how to make things work in cloud environments. And guess what? I don't need network engineers. I just need software engineers. That means I can have more software engineers actually working on the product I want to deploy instead of someone working on a VLAN table issue or a routing table issue or a firewall having to be restarted for the 18th time this month because the, cat, the code screwed up. Yeah, your tongue's not in your cheek here. You're, you're actually, this is how you feel about things, Peyton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if I think about the number of times at one large company that we had to do the same thing over again, which is restarted MSRX, that impacted all the operations of that company. Do you ever have that happen on AWS? No. You're working with compute in models where, yes, there might be some networking theory that has to be evolved about how I'm doing load balancing between origin servers in AWS, or there might have to be some scale implementations around how much I'm sending to each server. But it's not the networking experience required or the networking time or the impact of the business that happens by having on-prem compute. Now, I'm not at all advocating that everybody move everything to AWS or to Google or to Azure. There are always going to be situations where it is more effective and efficient and you need to have on-prem compute. But from a business's perspective, and this is what started this whole thing in the first place, the businesses, not the network engineers, not the software engineers, businesses are starting to say, why is this taking so long? Why can't I do things in two-week sprints like my software team does? Why does it take me 90 or 180 days? Why is it so hard? And then they see all the success people are having in cloud environments and being able to move faster. And they're saying, well, let's just move to that. Why would I want to continue to be on-prem when I can use things and rent them at scale? Meaning 
if my service is running at 150% of what it normally does, I pay for that, but I also can get there right away. Or if my service is running at 30%, I can scale back down and pay for that versus always having to have this on-prem stuff. Okay. You, you made a couple of points here, but I got to second guess these things. One is cost and so on. We can get to what appropriate cost model. Okay. you know, Another is moving fast, getting a service up and running in cloud. And uh, okay. And that all is tied back to, uh, as you've put it a couple of times here, software engineers or software engineering, at least taking care of that networking and infrastructure component. But I got to tell you, that freaks me out a little bit. So let me just kind of itemize these statements and then tell you why I'm freaking out. I need a hug. I do absolutely (laughs) need a hug because you say things like, okay, open source means you've got a network that's operated by software engineers and not managed by network engineers or the world of the future is software engineering that runs the network. These are things I picked out of some of your presentations. And here's the deal. I don't know any software engineers that know anything about networking. Usually they're like, "Eh, it's a socket I call and that's about it as far as it goes. So when you say something like that, I just want to curl up in the fetal position until what you said goes away. So if I'm crazy, tell me why I'm wrong here because you've made this point several times and, and address whether or not what you're getting at here is that network engineers are supposed to become software developers. Is that the transition we're seeing? Yes. Look, it's scary. I get it. I mean, I've, I've coded before I jumped back into networking because networking was more fun at the time. But this is the evolution that's happening. You know, I, I, we brought in a software team at one point at a company I was at, and we had these white box switches someone had delivered to us. They did not have a CLI. All they had was a Swagger interface. Within three days, the software team knew how to deploy them, operate them, and do all the things that they needed to do. That's not to say that they had to ask questions like, why use OSPF or why use ISIS or why use BGP? Once they figured that out, though, that network engineering part of it It was no longer, oh, I need to know what command line to run to turn on ISIS. It was, you sent a command to the switch and it turned on ISIS via Swagger. You used a separate networking instance on the background, just like we do today for control. So they could do any change they want. It didn't affect what was happening on on the larger network or they didn't get locked out. And the team was up and running. You think about operationalizing network engineers We've talked about it. It takes years. They have to learn all the different in and outs of CLI. They go get their CCNA, CCMP, or JCMP, or whatever. But it takes them years to get really good. When those software engineers stopped looking at things about, look, they started looking at how the network needed to operate for them, they were efficient. And they were holistically capable of doing everything they wanted. It's, it's scary, but that's true. I mean, that that is where we're going. and. Software engineers have never had to know anything about the network because we never really let them. You know, they were building their software device. And I said before, most high-level software engineers and, and leaders just thought that the networks worked in the most efficient way possible. Think about how much optimization software engineers do around their servers. Everything from I.O. to how many reads, writes can go to an SSD or can go to a, a standard drive. They look at that whole ecosystem and they can get, they can, a lot of them can get very specific in how those things work. What if we started thinking about the network as just extended IO? Ooh, that's really scary, right? But there's a place there for what network engineers are meant to do, which is to understand how that IO works the most efficient way possible. That sounds familiar. I'll share the experience I had when I started standing up. I'm mentioning a product, NSX, but it's what I know three or four years ago. And honestly, I felt the same way. I didn't want to learn the command interface. To be honest, I didn't really care about what the edge routers and all that stuff was was using from a you know command line syntax, whatever perspective. First thing I wanted to do was dig into the API, understand what calls could be made, and then automate all of that so that I could stand up environments and throw them away quickly so that I could learn the applications that, that would that would sit on top of it. And so, I don't know, it took me about a week to, to learn all of the endpoints and the resources, write a few modules within PowerShell, because that's, that's my language. And then I was like, okay, cool. Now we have a full build system to completely put together a pretty complex network, all of the routing, all the IPs and, and the names and whatnot for the, the gateways and, and the rules and, and all that jazz. And it was just it was just a JSON file that was kind of plugged into a few, you know, API calls. And, and honestly, I was like, wow, why, why hasn't it always been like this? To me, it was like, I can't believe that we sat around and had to like copy paste 
configs and dump them into switches and routers and things like that. This feels like much easier, repeatable, programmatic way to do it. And so I had that moment, I don't know, back in 2014, working with that system. Then I went and I was like, okay, what else can I do API calls to in the world of switching? And this was like nothing. <laughs> you know, like that this was it. Was like, are you kidding me? This sucks. Because uh, I really, I was like, okay, cool. Then I can have it automate my, you know, I've got an HP switch at home and a, and a Cisco switch and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, there's sort of some commands you can call remotely ish if you install this thing and this other pieces. I'm like, this is garbage. I can't, and that, that's when we had a show later on, Ethan, talking about like the, the horrible state of networking when it comes to yeah. programmability and automation. And so that that was my journey, and I, and I agree. I'm I had a networking background to a degree. It was mostly theoretical because my practical hands-on world ended in like the late '90s. Uh, it was really just more looking at it from a software engineering perspective and saying, "Well, this is how everything else works. Let me apply that to networking." And then I wanted to apply it to other solutions and stack. I'm like, "Oh man, this this doesn't this doesn't exist. I can't believe this." I felt really bad for network engineers, and it's only going to become more prevalent. You know, you look at companies like Vapor.io which is actually building really embedded data centers all the way down to the edge, literally standing boxes next to cell towers so you can be doing uh, decisions for things like driverless cars at the cell tower. But the way that those things are going to have to communicate even from the centralized network perspective are going to have to be extremely efficient. And that's going to be taken over by software engineers because the way we do it today as network engineers is not. And that's going to mean that we might as well start becoming software engineers might as well start looking at ways to do this much more efficiently and doing things like changing our tech stacks and all that other stuff because it's just, it's going to happen. Well, Peyton, this has been a great conversation and I hope people in non-networking silos got some insight into what's going on here because it's not like every IT silo's got this figured out, but uh, I think many folks that are not in networking are listening to this going, oh, these aren't solved problems, you know, surprise, surprise. And then hearing what the state, the state of things are. Uh, in the show notes at packetpushers.net, if you look for the Data Not Show and find this show, you'll find links to a presentation that Peyton's done and uh, and also a blog post he's written from back in the days when he worked at Riot Games about uh, some of the custom work that they did to improve latency and lag for uh, for players on that network that uh, that were using the internet. And Peyton, where else can people uh, follow you? Are you social or blogging anywhere else that you'd like to mention to people? Sure, on Twitter, I'm Peyton Coran, P-E-Y-T-O-N-K-O-R-A-N. And my LinkedIn is uh, LinkedIn-N, Stephen Coran, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-O-R-A-N. I also uh, will be spinning up a couple of initiatives that I'll let people know about in the future. Well, that is great. Thank you very much for taking the time today. This is uh, not your first appearance on the Packet Pushers Network, but uh, we're glad you made the time again to chat with us here at the Data Knots. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. You can reach Ethan, that would be me, at EC Banks on Twitter, and I have a personal blog, ethancbanks.com, if you'd like to read about productivity, and packetpushers.net is where all my tech writing is, and you can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is wallnetwork.com. And for more of our Data Not Shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your infrastructure, even the network, work with your business and your cables be cleanly managed. Like the danger zone.